Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the Book of Romans. In this sermon, the doctrine of imputation is taught and explained to show that those in Christ have their sins transferred onto Christ and His righteousness onto us. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Are You an Adam or Christ? 21. It's one of the core principles, one of the core beliefs um, that we have here at the church family um, that God is smarter than us and that when he puts something in the word, we need it, that it is not a wise way to go about studying his word to pick and choose the spots that we want. We talk about this fairly often, but that when we systematically study through the scripture, we encounter sections, truths, and passages that we probably wouldn't pick, but then when we get in them, we see truths that we need. God knows what we need more than we know what we need. We're entering a section here that I'll bet if you get a random opportunity to teach a Bible study, probably not the passage you're gonna go to, but when we get into it, we start to see, oh, okay, there is deeper stuff here. There, there are truths of God and what he's arranged in the gospel that we need and it is transforming. So Romans 5, we're going to begin in verse 12, read through verse 21, and then we will begin to study through this passage. Today's kind of the overview day that we look at. It. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, Because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God And the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then it's through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our sovereign God, Father, we ask you to give us grace right now. Lord, in your presence, in your throne room right now, um, the angels and men who are gathered around are offering up worship in perfection, glorious and 
high honor is being given to you, O God. And we know we on this earth, still plagued by sin, we're struggling to just even understand the basic truths, just even what is shallow, O God. But Father, we pray, give us understanding, O God, so that we can join in the purpose of the cosmos. What is taking place in your presence, the worship of your name. Give us grace, O God, so that we come to know you, so that we can join in, we can know your ways, know your gospel, know what it is you've brought about in your son. Father, show us the deep mysteries. Show us the insights of your character, your glory, and Lord, that we would delight in you all through it. Help us right now, O God, as we study through this passage. Father, this is going about as deep as we're capable of. So give us the grace, I pray, just even just the mental ability to understand. But Father, we know we need more than that. In comprehending your truths, bring us to be transformed by them. Give us help. Bless us to worship through the hearing of your word that we will all bow to you. Father, my job helped me to teach, preach in a way that is helpful and useful. Father, we pray all these things through Christ. Amen. Uh, Eric Liddell uh, won gold in the 400 meter dash in the 1924 Olympics. Now, if his name sounds familiar to you, you might recognize it because there was a 1981 film called Chariots of Fire that came out about his life. Liddell was a Christian, no nominal, shallow Christian. Liddell was an earnest Christian who took obedience to God seriously, was very passionate and zealous uh, about honoring God. In fact, one just kind of little example of that, uh, the 400 meter dash was actually not his race. He was not expected to win that. The 100 meter, that was his race. But actually the qualifications, the, the heats were run on a Sunday and he refused to compromise his convictions about worship and miss meeting together with the people of God. And so he gave up what was going to be a certain goal. He was expected to win that 100, gave it up and instead went to the 400. Not his race, but gave a chance Worked out that he did win. But the year after the Olympics, he left to go to the mission field. And from 1925 to 1943, so roughly 18-ish years, he went to China, traveled through various cities, engaging in various kinds of ministries to different people, sharing the gospel again and again. But when 1943 came around, he found himself in a, in a rough and impoverished area of China, and the Japanese were encroaching upon, and there was some turmoil going on. And in 1943, the Japanese invaded, invaded the region he was in, took captives, and then sentenced them into an internment camp. Now, Liddell's pregnant wife and two daughters got out ahead of these, these things happening, but Eric did not want to give up the ministry that was taking place, and so he stayed with the hopes that we'll let this thing die out. But instead, he was taken captive. Now, by the way, Eric would never see um, the child that his wife carried uh, at that moment, who would be a third daughter of his. But in the camp where Eric found himself, conditions there were vile. 
Now, they, they weren't tortured, they weren't beaten, it wasn't that kind of scenario, but you had a situation where 20,000 captives lived in these slums and close quarters where there was a scarcity of food. 20,000 captives shared just a, a small number of toilets and such. Everyone lived hungry, lived in these vile kind of miserable conditions, all waiting for the day of their freedom. Now, another man who had been taken captive at the same time was a man by the name of Langdon Gilkey. Now, Gilkey was not a Christian. Gilkey had been exposed to Christianity early on, had rejected it in his own words. He had seen the truths of Scripture, but instead saw the philosophies of the world and had embraced the beliefs, the ideas of the world. Most particular, he makes note of. The belief that everybody is, you know, we're all basically good. Everybody's okay. Everybody's fine. If there is a God, then we're all okay with him. But man is basically good. Gilkey was a Harvard grad with a degree in philosophy, had traveled to China to teach English, and was taken captive inside the camp. But life inside this camp changed Gilkey's view of the world. It's kind of like God put on display a drama, which by the way, that is what God is doing in the world. A drama displaying the truths of reality and who he is. But he saw day in and day out that the philosophies, the ideas, the beliefs that he had come to embrace from the world, he saw each one crumble, crumble, crumble and be shown as completely ridiculous. He came to see the depravity of man the vile ugliness and selfishness of humanity. He came to the conclusion, all people are selfish. Because he lived day in and day out. And of course he saw like the ugliness and the selfishness from the captors, from the, the Japanese who were imprisoning them and such. They kind of expected that. But what surprised him the most was the way the captives themselves behaved. He saw... Selfishness lived out every single day. He saw men trip others on the way to run and get food. He saw humans deprive food from children in order that they could have more. He came to the conclusion people are selfish and we all hide it really well in society. But you remove the veils. You put them in a situation where, where the walls of politeness and the facade that we put on, the mask we put on, whenever those things are taken away and the core of humanity is shown, men will trip old ladies in order to get to food. He was seeing biblical principles on display, but there's, there's more, and I am getting to a point here. There's more that he saw there. He also saw that the religious could be just as selfish and sometimes even more so than the secularist. He saw another biblical principle. Religion itself isn't gonna make you a better person. In fact, one of the things that really bothered him 
is that the religious and even some of those who are in China as missionaries would sometimes be more selfish than the secularist. And what made it even worse is they would oftentimes then give religious excuses, you know, Bible verses taken out of context and these kinds of things to give manipulated excuses for why they would do the things that they would do. For instance, there were times where people could bribe one of the guards to get extra food brought in and the religious would sometimes come up with theological sounding twisted manipulations of scripture to justify why they would not share with the weakest and the sickest among them. He was seeing depravity on display all around him. But amidst that dark canopy of all of that pervasive ugliness, there was a, there was a small group that he saw lived differently, but there was one man in particular who was like a different species of man. It was Eric Liddell. While every single day selfishness was being lived out, the, the reports and interviews that come out about Liddell really are pretty amazing. There have been books written from this experience, interviews that were given and such. And the reports that come, the people who talk about Liddell in the time that they encountered him, they speak of him with such incredible admiration that while selfishness was being lived out every single day, Liddell lived exhausted from pouring himself out. Every day going around the camp to try to be an encouragement to the faint-hearted. He was giving his own food to feed others. There were times where even just to try to bring a little bit of happiness to the kids, he'd get them together out in the streets and teach them how to dance. He was constantly going around forming Bible studies, helping people understand the scriptures, constant conversation, constant service. He was exhausted. At one point had a mental breakdown from exhaustion. He lived moment by moment thinking in this moment right here, how can I serve Christ? An amazing example in the midst of that. Now, we talk about that illustration. We could give all kinds of applications from there. You know, we could say, say something like, go be like him, okay? That's an application. But here's one specifically that some of those who knew him personally, they came to see. Gilkey himself ended up writing a book, actually, after the experience. He became a Christian. After his freedom, went back to the United States, got a PhD in theology, and taught theology for the rest of his life. Pretty amazing fruit that came out of this. But here is something he points out that Liddell specifically impacted everybody around him with. Liddell helped people come to understand the gospel helped bring people to faith in Christ. But even amongst the truths of the gospel, there was one truth in particular that oozed out of him and everyone came to understand more deeply because of it. Gilkey saw that religious men often acted as bad or worse than the secularists, but he saw this. Those who believed the gospel of free grace were different kind of men. Those who had comprehended the depths of the gospel and were amazed by the grace of God, those were the different people. 
You, you couldn't just say that the religious folk in general, they were different. No, no, no. Oftentimes what he saw is those who held to religious beliefs where you believed you saved yourself, where you believed in some way you made yourself right with God, you achieved your righteousness, you earned merit through your good works or the sacraments or your religious devotion, that you made yourself right with God. He said they had a pride in their hearts that made them worse than the seculars, but those who comprehended the gospel of free grace, here's his words, who had a personal experience with the gospel of free grace were transformed into different kind of men. Now here's what we mean by free grace. The Bible makes the argument in the book of Romans we've been seeing is specifically one of the places in the Bible where this is made most clear that unlike the teaching of the world, you by yourself, you are not okay. You are not right with God. You are not fit for heaven. You have sinned, you have broken the law of the holy God and you deserve an eternity of wrath. It doesn't matter whether you like that. It doesn't matter whether it is popular. The living God that you'll meet in judgment says that you have broken his law and you can do nothing about it yourself. You have absolutely no way that you can do enough good works or be religious enough or help enough old ladies across the street. There is no amount of good things you can do that are ever going to put you in a place that you are fit for heaven, right with God, saved from the wrath that you deserve. You are completely helpless before God, but what God has done in Christ is God designed and enacted a way for you to be right with him, for you to be forgiven of your sins, but for it to come to you completely as a gift and nothing that you buy or earn. The message of the gospel is that whenever you look to Christ in faith, you attach yourselves to God by faith in Christ, you are given a gift gift of free grace, a gift that you do not deserve. It is given by faith in Christ. That's free grace. Gilkey saw that those who hold to a religion where you believe you make yourself right with God actually became self, more selfish than before. But those with personal experience with the gospel of free grace it had a transforming power. Well, it's no wonder then, you know, as we read through the pages of the New Testament, that we are constantly being exposed to the gospel. And the place that um, the, the one truth of the gospel that God is over and over again highlighting that he says is going to display his glory even more than any other attribute is that of his grace. Over and over again, we've been seeing the book of Romans bring us into the depths to, to wrestle with what are these truths of reality so that we come to understand grace. The passage we're entering right now, though it's got some confusing, mysterious, and some deep stuff, Though it's got some ways that when you read through it, even the first couple few times, it still seems a little confusing, what it is doing is helping us understand our helplessness apart from Christ and the magnitude of the grace we've been given and understand God has a purpose with it. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, meaning that every lost person who hears the gospel and believes it has the power to make them new creatures. But what the Bible also says is that the gospel is the power of God to transform those who are already justified. This passage we're looking at right here is the gospel being presented, another aspect, another truth, another angle of the gospel being shown to believers, being shown to you and I in Christ for the purpose of transforming us as we understand the grace of God. But it does so in a way that we don't normally talk about. And just to be honest, there are some truths in here that the Western mind does not like. And even by the time we leave today, you might have had a moment of wrestling with some things you don't like. Get used to it when you study the Bible. This is probably not a passage you would pick to lead a Bible study on. Many call this passage the the hardest passage in the book of Romans to understand. I think I agree with them. Now, thankfully, all of the major doctrines, all of the major truths, they are clear, but there are still some details that we have to kind of say there are some mysteries here. I believe what God's saying, but we will see the the doctrines made clear. So here's Here's what's happening in the passage. Now, longer introduction because this is our first time in this new passage. I want to give kind of the overview understanding here. If you remember, going back to chapter 3, verses 21 to 28, you might flip back there for just a moment if you don't remember what's going on there. This is where, this is the central passage of the book of Romans. It really is the central passage of the Bible. That the the message of the gospel is briefly explained there. And what the subsequent chapters have been doing is this. What it keeps doing is it takes an individual truth, an individual doctrine, a part of the gospel, and it holds it up and says, okay, everybody look at this. We all want to understand it here. We're going to study it for a little bit. Okay, faith. You're not justified by your works. You're justified by faith. And so we had chapter four. Chapter four was an entire chapter all about this one thing. You're not justified by works, you're justified by faith. So it's kind of like the Holy Spirit is holding it up saying, okay, everybody look at it. You understand it? Let's put it down. Let's pick up the next one. Chapter five, one through 11. Here are the blessings and the benefits of being right with God. Here are the 10 things you get from being right with God. Everybody see it? Okay, let's put it down. Now, when we come to 12 through 21, another truth is being picked up for us to study individually so we understand it. And the truth is this, it's the doctrine of imputation. Now we don't say big words just to try to sound smart, that kind of thing, imputation, we've mentioned it before because we've seen it briefly, but here's the quick explanation of what it is. It's just like in the Old Testament, when when God gave the sacrificial system, he gave it so that we could understand this, temporary pictures, it showed this. A sinner who deserved to die because of our sin, could take a lamb, bring it to the priest. The lamb could be slain, its blood spilt and captured, and then that blood would be sprinkled. And what would happen is the the sins and the guilt of the sinner would be symbolically transferred. It would count as the sacrifice. 
Remember, the offerer would lay his hands on the head of the offering, and this would symbolize that, that transfer of guilt, and then the unblemished nature of that lamb, it would count as the sinner. That, that, the word count, the transfer that we're talking about, that's imputation. That's imputation. Now, we know that that sacrifice didn't literally cover the man's sin before God eternally. It's a picture that God gave. Even the Old Testament believers were still saved by the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ. But God put that in place so that we would understand this principle, the principle of imputation, just as Jesus on the cross was counted as if he were the sinner and those who come to him in faith, those who attach themselves to Christ, we are counted as righteous. That's what justification is. You're counted as right, righteous before God, but it ain't your righteousness. It's Christ. So imputation is speaking of that, that double substitution, that, that double transfer. Our sins onto Christ, Christ's righteousness onto us. Well, all of that, that's pretty deep stuff. We's about to go deeper. The passage takes us even deeper into understanding the depths of this imputation and how the grace of God is so great. So hear this, Christian. The grace that you have been shown in Christ, it is greater than you have ever comprehended. And what this passage is doing is helping us go even deeper with comprehending how big is the mercy we've been shown. How glorious and how great is it? This passage is meant to help us. So here's how I've outlined uh, the passage here. Here's the way that I think it breaks down if you're taking notes. This one doesn't have 10 points. You can be happy about that one. But here are four, four places that there are. Number one in verses 12 to 14, sin and death from Adam. And if you're taking notes today, you might leave room for five sub points that are going to come as we look at today. But secondly, number two, verses 15 to 17, Adam and Christ are contrasted. Then in number three, in verses 18 and 19, Adam and Christ are compared. And then verses 20 and 21, Lastly, we see the purpose of the law. Today, we're only going to cover point number one, and we'll see some subpoints as we look at that. But let's get started here with number one, sin and death from Adam. Uh, look at the text again. Uh, look at, let's read verses 12 to 14 again, kind of, kind of refresh ourselves. You'll, you'll help yourselves by reading it through the week to get the language in your head. But verse 12, therefore, just as through one man, that one man is Adam, sin entered into the world. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. The passage hinges on us understanding that Adam was a, a type, that's, that's the biblical word here, a type of Christ. Other words that the Bible may use are, are things like a type, a figure, a picture, a foreshadow, a, a pattern. You'll see that kind of language used in the book of Hebrews and such. And, and, it, and it basically means this. All through history and recorded, especially in the Old Testament, 
God has put events in place, objects in place, these various things that he ordained that were meant to serve as illustrations of Christ, of the coming of Jesus. Now we talk about this all the time, especially if you're a part of like Sunday school where we teach through the Old Testament and things. We're seeing this stuff all the time. I'm not exaggerating when I say that there are hundreds, hundreds of these from the Old Testament that God intentionally put in place and they were meant to be like neon signs in history pointing to the coming of the Son of God. Jesus is coming to this earth. His life as a man, the death as a substitute for salvation, it is the central event of history and the cosmos. It really is what everything is about. It's what the entire Bible hinges on. And the Bible is just the explanation of reality. It really is what everything exists for. It all exists. The Father is magnifying the name of His Son, and He's done so chiefly through the work of the gospel. This is the point of all of history. It's the point of the Bible. And one of the ways that we see that is the Old Testament is filled with all of these ways that it's like every character is pointing forward, screaming, look ahead to the coming of the Son of God. So the Old Testament is just filled with this. We talk about it all the time. Like, like here's, here's a quick one that kind of helps us with what we're talking about today. Like when David fought and killed Goliath, you have a descendant of Judah who looks like an unlikely champion. He represents the people of God. He fights the people's greatest enemy and cuts off his head, thereby bringing salvation. Then you have Jesus, descendant of Judah, looks like an unlikely champion, represents the people of God in a greater way, fights our greatest enemy, the greater enemy, sin, death, hell, Satan, cuts off the head of the giant and giving us a greater salvation. We see in this, it's all over, all over the place through the Bible. It's just filled with this. There were ways that Moses pictured Christ. Joseph pictured Christ. All of the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, Hosea, they're all picturing Christ in some way. Marriage is a picture of Christ. The Lord's Supper, baptism, Sodom and Gomorrah, Passover. It's all pointing to Christ. The temple, every piece of furniture within the temple, all the sacrificial system, it's all pointing to Christ. What all of this is, types and shadows. When we read the Old Testament, there's a point that each one of them have, but then we're supposed to also see it in the bigger picture. It's all pointing to Christ. In the same kind of way, Adam was a type or a picture of Christ. So how so? Adam represented everyone attached to him. And that is every human. Adam represented all of mankind. Adam's actions have affected all who are connected to him. And in the same way, Jesus came to represent all who will be attached to him. Jesus's actions have affected all who are connected to him by faith. And so from this passage, 1 Corinthians 15 is another place where there's a brief little section about Adam and Christ. From these, we oftentimes speak of Jesus as the second Adam, the greater Adam. Over and over again, 
when we see in the Bible that there's a type of Christ, there's a way that there's a small illustration, but then what, how Jesus fulfills it, it's greater. It's greater. So kind of like in Matthew 12, the temple was meant to be a picture of Christ and salvation. In Matthew 12, Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is the second, the greater man who represents all who are connected with him. And we are attached to him by faith, not by physical descent. By your birth, you are attached to Adam. But to be attached to Christ, you must be born again. You see, in all these kinds of parallels that you have here, all of this is God exalting his son. So Adam was ordained by God to be a a type, a picture of Christ. And all through this passage, Adam and Jesus are compared and contrasted and were brought to understand the different kinds of imputation the different kinds of ways that those who represent us, things have come to us. So let me do do this with the time that we have left. Let me do just kind of two last things. Let me list off five truth statements from verses 12 to 14. So these are the the five sub points. I'm going to list them off, briefly explain them. And then the last thing we're going to do is I'm going to explain and defend the most controversial of them. We're going to spend a little bit of time with this one that sometimes gives folks fits. So if you're ready, here is number one, verse 12. Sin entered through one man. Now you probably already believed that before you came in this morning, but consider it. Sin is not natural to this world. God did not create this world with sin inherent. God created the world, his declaration, very good. Sin entered in from the outside and it came in through one man. Now, one little kind of side note here, you know, this little parenthesis subpoint. Um, we do believe Adam to be a real historical figure, like not a parable. Like Adam's not just made up because God had a story he wanted to tell, that kind of thing. There are some who kind of hold that sort of belief. Kind of have a hard time with this passage if you don't believe Adam is a real historical figure, okay? The first man created by God. And sin came into this world through him. But there's something that we need to see already. Sin came to you because of Adam. You were, you are by nature depraved. When you were conceived, and yes, conceived is a word that the Bible uses for this. Look at Psalm 51 sometime. You were conceived fallen. You were conceived a wicked person from the womb with a twisted bent in your heart towards what is selfish. You had resistance to God already pulsing through your veins from the moment of conception. And so did I. Listen, you weren't given a choice in the matter. Nobody came to you before you were born and said, hey, do you want the sin nature or not? Oh, oh, you do? Okay, I'll give it to you. No, it never happened. You, you were never neutral. You were born with a sin nature that has come to you from Adam. Are you seeing why people hate this doctrine? 
Are you seeing why many want to fight against this? See, friends, what we're seeing here is this. We are seeing imputation, but we're seeing it from a different direction than what we normally talk about. We normally talk about the happy imputation of Christ's righteousness to me and my sin onto him. That's a great deal. There's another kind of imputation that took place. Adam's sin has affected all who came from him. And that's all y'alls and me included. All right, well, there, there's, there's more controversy. We'll come back to it in just a moment, but already be seeing these things. Here's, here's the second truth statement. Sin produces death. This is very clear from the Bible. Men dying was not a part of the original glorious creation. The warning that God gave Adam in the, listen very carefully, in the covenant of works. Do you remember this? We've talked about it in Romans. The covenant of works is the arrangement that you were born into this world and you were not born a Christian. You were not born in the new covenant. You and I are born in an old covenant, the covenant of works, the arrangement with God that he designed at creation. And the design is obey me and you will live, but disobey and you will die. We sometimes just think of it as just simple justice, crime, deserves punishment. That's just simple justice. You and I were born under the law of God. We have had the law of God all along and we have broken the law of God. Adam sinned and brought death on himself, but not just on himself. Death came to the world. You do understand, friends, that the curse, the curse that Adam brought affected the entire planet, like the animal kingdom, the water cycle. Like it's affected the whole earth, not just mankind. But what this passage about is how Adam's sin has affected mankind. But death is here because sin is here. Verse three, excuse me, number three in verse 12, all have sinned and so all die. You got just a simple building of logic here, okay? Sin came into the world through one man, Death comes through sin. Guess what? All have sinned and so all die. There's a little bit of debate in this one right there. If you see that in verse 12, I'll just kind of tell you what it is and you can kind of work through it yourself. The little bit of debate that scholars, theologians have is this. Is the passage saying that every individual sins and therefore every individual dies? Or is the passage saying that because we have all sinned in Adam, our connection with Adam Death has come in general. You might think that that difference really doesn't matter, but think through it. But one thing for sure to see from the passage is we are clearly being shown that Adam's sin plunged you, I, and everyone else into sin and death. Condemnation has come to us through Adam. But one of the things we will see is we've all participated in it. Here's number four. Even before Moses lived and gave the law at Sinai, there was a law of God that existed and men broke it. Now look at verses 13 and 14 again. And he's got a point for why he teaches this here. Look at verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. When it says law there, that's speaking of law of Moses. For until the law of Moses given at Sinai was in the world, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. You, you might almost like hear him saying, the Jews objecting saying, but I thought, thought there was no sin until law was in the world. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned 
from Adam until Moses. Here, here's the point being made, okay? We've seen this point made two times, and it's got a purpose. In Exodus 20, God gave Israel that he was bringing into covenant with himself. He gave them his law, capital L, law. We sometimes call it the law of Moses or the law of Sinai, all right? It's the Ten Commandments, but it's more than the Ten Commandments. If you remember, the law of Moses had three parts, there's the moral law. That's the part that's the most obvious. That's the part that sometimes we just call morality or sometimes people call ethics. Well, the Bible calls it the law of God. So the moral law, God wrote it out and clarified what the moral law is. He also gave the judicial law like crime and punishment because he was establishing a nation. And then that third part, the part that is the most confusing when you read the Old Testament, the ceremonial law. That's the part about the priest, the washing, the unclean animals. Those were all temporary rules established and are now fulfilled in Christ and we're no longer under them. So all three parts of that, that was the law of Moses. Now here's the deal. Many of the Jewish people in Paul's day thought, they arrogantly thought, we are the only ones in the world who can be righteous because we are the only ones who can obey God, because we are the only ones who have the law. And so what the book of Romans has done three times now is to point a finger and say this, look, bub, your logic is false. And let me show you why. If the Gentiles, the peoples of the earth, if they have no law whatsoever, no law of God, then listen, that means they've never, ever sinned. Why? Because sin is failing to keep the law of God. We know they have sinned. Therefore, we know there is a law that they are under, the moral law written on all of our hearts. So he's got a way, he's applying this all the way through. So we see the point that is being made here. God wrote the law and the sin of Adam has affected the Jewish people and every other people group on the earth. It's part of what he's getting to. We have all sinned. We have all broken the law of God. And so the point is, even the humans who lived before Moses, who didn't have the law with a capital L, they still had the law of God. Sin and death reigned in them. And then that takes us to number five, kind of a general statement here. Death reigned over mankind before Moses, during Moses, after Moses, and still today. Mankind, since Adam, is under sin and death. All right, so those are the basic truths. Let's talk a little bit about this most controversial part here. In Adam, because of Adam, you are a sinner. Now, we say that there are a couple things there that would be helpful to talk about. One is the doctrine of original sin that you were conceived and born with this bent in you. My intention is to come back to just one doctrinal sermon on original sin at a, at a later point. My intention, we'll see if it happens, okay? But hold on to that thought for now. There's original sin, but there's also this aspect right here. Someone else's sin has affected you. Someone else's sin has altered the course of your life. It has brought disaster to my life. So why does someone else's sin affect me? Western minds don't like this. Now, you, you need to know that 
many people groups from other cultures, whenever they come to this part, they don't have a problem with this. Okay? Uh, I'm told that Asian cultures, when they hear the gospel, they have no problem with this. They also have no problem with hell, which Americans lose their minds over. But they also have some parts about the gospel that hang hangups for them that you may not have a difficulty with. The point is, we all come from backgrounds and the popular beliefs of the masses, the popular beliefs that we live around, they have a way of, of, of coloring the way that we see everything. And so let me kind of just give a little bit of a, a warning right here. Don't ever try to change the meaning of the Bible because it doesn't match your previously held beliefs. We have to come to the Bible with this humble recognition, this is the word of God. We have to come understanding my previously held beliefs in the way that I think right now are not perfect. I don't know where I'm in error. If I knew I was in error, I would change it. I don't know where I'm in error. I need the Bible to seek and destroy all of the places in my life that are not truthful. When people come to the Bible and they read a section and they go, well, that can't be what it means. I'm sure it means. And then they give their interpretation, which is clearly not what's happening in the Bible. Think about what's happening right there. That is basically saying, I am the standard by which all statements will be made. Thus saith me. And I will change the Bible wherever it doesn't match me. That is incredibly arrogant. That is saying, I am the great interpreter of the cosmos. That's ridiculous. And so I'm just, I'm just going to warn you. It is a regular Christian experience. You read through the Bible, there are places you're not going to like at first. There are places in the law of Moses. If it's been a little while since you read there, there are things in the law of Moses that when you read them, you are not going to like because it doesn't match your standards of justice. What we have to comprehend is God's standard is perfect. God has never done anything unrighteous in all of history. I must conform my thinking to the Bible and not try to get the Bible to conform to my thinking. I'm going to say the exact same things when we come to Romans 9 and we talk about election. Because a lot of people read that and be like, well, I don't think that's fair of God. Shut up. The living God spoke these words. We conform our thinking to his. I'm suggesting to you that there's a part right here that Western minds don't like. Someone else's sin affected you. It is the reality in this world that certain individuals represent larger groups. If the captain of the football team meets with the refs before overtime when they're calling heads and tails and who gets the ball first, that kind of thing. If he makes a good decision, the entire team benefits. If he makes a poor decision, the entire team suffers. This is a reality. I don't know a single coach who doesn't operate according to this principle right here. Because when one player messes up, the whole team is punished. Why? Because we win as a team. We lose as a team. We see this principle all the time. If our president, this is not a political statement, this is in theory. If our president makes a foolish decision and ticks off another nation so that that nation wants to be at war with us, guess what? You didn't make that decision. You didn't speak those words, but you now have a target on your head. Why? Because our representative did. It is a reality of this world that oftentimes representatives affect everyone who is attached to them. And this is all through the Bible. This is all through the Bible. Remember that time when God put a curse on the land of Israel 
because Saul, their king, had broken the covenant with the Gibeonites and he would not allow any rain to come on the land until they had made right. The sin of the leader affected the people. This is all through the Bible. This is inescapable. And Adam's sin has affected us. We have inherited a sin nature and condemnation. But also understand this, you and I have personally contributed. We have participated. Our own personal sins are ways we show our solidarity with Adam. It's kind of like ways we've cast in our votes in support of Adam. You might not like the reality of the sin nature, but you have participated. You have joined Adam. You've shown by your decisions that you support him. You can't help. You cannot help what has come before you and from what you and what you receive. But you and I are responsible for what we do about it. See, this is a point that the world wants to disagree with the Bible here. The world recognizes that there are things that happen. So for instance, the decisions of parents affect children. Many children endure a lifetime of issues that are spillover from the decisions of their parents. What the world wants to do is say this, oh, oh, this happened to you in your past? Oh, oh, you had these things happen? Okay, well, that means you're off the hook then. That means that your drug addictions, your anger problems, your uh, criminal activity, none of that is your fault because this was done to you. The Bible instead comes at it from another direction. You cannot help what was done to you in the past, but you are responsible for how you respond to it. You are responsible for what you do about it. If a young man is born into a camp of terrorists, if he follows the natural current of life, he will become a terrorist like his parents are. But that doesn't mean he is absolved of guilt. He has the responsibility to reject the wicked current of what is going there. The point is, Jesus made a way for you and I to escape the sin of Adam and what we have received because of him. You and I, at a certain point, have chosen to go along with the current of original sin. But you and I are responsible that God has made a way for us to leave. You can reject Adam. You can join yourself to a new representative. You can be a part of a new people. You can have a new kind of imputation, not of sin, but of righteousness, not of death, but of life. And the point is, Jesus made a way for you to do just that. You can leave one representative and join yourself to another by turning to Christ in faith. Faith attaches you to Christ. Repentance is like you are standing in the midst of an army that is in opposition to God. Repentance is like realizing I'm in the wrong crowd. Dropping your weapons, walking across the battlefield and joining yourself to the general of the opposing army and becoming a servant of him. Joining yourself to Christ. He's made a way for you to do this. You can leave sin and become righteous with God because of Jesus's imputation to you. Understand this very carefully, and I'm just about done here. Thanks for your patience. You belong to someone. 
You are in someone's bag. You are someone's people. It is Adam or Christ. The question you have to ask is, who do you belong to? Because it is one of those two, there ain't no middle ground. It's Adam or Christ. And in Adam, all die. In Adam, there is condemnation. In Adam, there is judgment. In Christ, there is the deliverance from all of those things. In Adam, all die. So do you belong to Adam? Then you are under condemnation, regardless of the excuses that people call out. But I'm not as bad as other people. Are you an Adam? Then you stand with those in opposition and you are under condemnation. Sure, I believe there are varying degrees of punishment and those who are exceedingly wicked will know worse misery than the rest. But the fact remains, if you stand with the people in opposition to God, there is no life. In Adam all die. But I'm religious preacher. Religion itself without repentance, without belonging to Christ, is choosing to remain in that group of those in opposition to God. But I'm trying to put on prettier clothes so that I look better while I'm doing it. Religion without being attached to Christ is like a married man who leaves his wife and goes and moves in with a lover. And while he's there, he tries to do nice things. Your nice things don't change the house that you're in. You are in the house of rebellion. Are you in Adam? In Adam, all die. But my parents were Christians, then they are not in Adam. But you were born in Adam, and you have chosen to remain in Adam by choosing to remain with the people in opposition to God. It does not matter the objection at the end of the day. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? You are in someone's camp. You are someone's people. Imputation has happened regardless of what you think, but a new kind of imputation can come. Jesus's righteousness can be counted as yours. For the Christian, we rejoice in the grace of that and see even more deeply, I really did nothing to deserve this. It is all of God's mercy. And if you haven't turned to Christ, understand the one application you need. Leave Adam and join yourself to Christ by turning to him in faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and thank you for the hundreds of ways you explain to us the greatness of the grace you've given. And I pray that we will delight in it. For the believers, God, I pray that we will live as a people who are transformed by the power of your grace. And Father, any in the room that has not turned to Christ, God, I pray that they will comprehend just the danger that they really are in and they will turn to Christ. Bring them to believe and to join themselves to you. Please bless us, O oh God, as we leave. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things through Christ. Amen. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, Are You an Adam or Christ? Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. 
follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.